We'll look at the book of Obadiah this morning, at this aspect of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the conquering king. The overall feeling, you would probably say, of Christmas is brightness and happiness and joy, because we are thankful for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and I hope you really are. And I hope that this is a a, a great time where we remember it is good to be happy about that. It is good to be joyful about that. Um, Because the eternal son took on human flesh, if you're trusting him for eternal life, if he's your savior and you are relying on him alone, that means all your sins are forgiven. Sins of your past, sins of your present, the sins that you will commit. Now, is that an excuse to just go ahead and sin willy-nilly all you want? No, it is not. Uh, the, the evidence that you are truly saved will be seen in that you don't want to sin. It, you're grieved when you sin. And the Spirit convicts you about that. If you're trusting Christ, because the eternal Son became flesh, lived and died and rose again, you're accepted by God. He views you as having his righteousness. You could never get that yourself, could you? But you have that because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, he has adopted you into his family. You have all the legal rights and standing. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're his child. He's your heavenly father. And he loves you. You have the Spirit indwelling you. You have a new nature. All these things. But this really only considers half the reason why Christ came. It's what we call the good news part. And how many would vote that it is good news? It is good news, isn't it? The fact of the matter, though, is that few trust in Christ. Such good news... Such salvation. And few believe it. Most love their sin rather than Christ. Most want to live like they want to live. Most hate the triune God of the Christian scriptures. Most think that Christians are foolish idiots. Most have a hostility and a hatred for Christians. Because we primarily think of Jesus Christ in terms of spiritual salvation, we might not grasp this other aspect of our incarnate Savior. That he came as the Savior and he will be the judge. He will judge those who express and live out their unbelief on a daily basis, who live it out in a concrete, real life. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and he will come again, and he will fully judge sin, and finally, and once and for all, and judge sin. He will be the conquering king. He 
the creator will avenge his saints. And he will do that when he returns, when Jesus returns again, not to save sinners from, from damnation. He will come again in judgment. The Lord gave this prophecy to this man Obadiah, to the people of Judah. And he gave them this prophecy to encourage them that though they were experiencing a lot of trouble from their southern neighbor, Edom, God would judge Edom and he would deliver Judah. Obadiah is a doom song. It has a single theme, God's judgment of Edom. So a little background on Edom. As I said, they were just south of of Israel, of Judah, along the southern Dead Sea area. They were the nation that came out of Esau. You've heard those twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Even when they were in the womb, they were fighting each other, struggling against each other. Edom was continually a thorn in Israel's side. When Israel came out of Egypt, Edom afflicted them. Under the reigns of Saul, David, Solomon, and so many other kings, Edom was always rebelling, always pushing, always prodding, always doing everything they could. There's some different names used for Edom here in this book of Obadiah. There are three in particular. There's Edom that we're used to. He's also called Esau. And another one that's used once in, uh, let's see, where is it? Verse um, verse 9, and it says, Your mighty men, O Timon. That's its capital. And so sometimes you'll know people will refer to the United States from our capital. Washington says this. It's referring to the, the nation of the United States. And that's what that's referring to. So three names for the same nation, Edom, Esau, and Timon. How will the Lord judge Edom? And how will the Lord judge all other enemies of God's people. Let's listen. Let's listen to what God says through Obadiah. A prophet that we don't know anything about other than the meaning of his name, and his name means worshiper of the Lord. That's all we know about this guy. Let's look first at the first section, verses 1 to 14. The Lord's judgment of Edom and Israel's who is Israel's persecuting enemy. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. And so the Lord, in, a, in using a figure of speech, sends a messenger to the nations, saying, Nations, you will arise, and you will unite, and you will humiliate Edom. Let us arise. These nations arise and rise up against Edom for battle. Verses 2 through 4. Number 1. The Lord, we will see here, the Lord will humble. The Lord will humble Edom's swelling pride. The Lord will humble Edom's swelling pride. Verse 2. 
God says, behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. You hear what Edom says? Who will bring me down? I am so high up. I am in such a high and secure place. Nobody can bring me down. Their dwelling place caused them to have this sense of utter security. On the front of your bulletins, you have a picture of this basic area of, of Edom. This is not the entire nation, of course. But you see, that's not exactly Iowa or Ohio there, is it? It's not flat. It's very rocky, very mountainous. It's hard to get to, and that's where they lived. They lived on top of this mountain range. This is one, one part of that. In particular, uh, where their capital was, there was only one way to get there. I almost put that, that as your picture, but I didn't like it. It wasn't as pretty looking uh, There was only one way to get up there, this little pass. And so you can see what a great defensive position it was. Edom men could just sit up there with their arrows and their rocks and just fling them down at these attacking armies. They had this natural protection. And what did that do to their head? It swelled their head really proud. And God says in verse 3, no matter how big your head is going to get, I, the Lord, who am greater than all, I will make you, verse 2, small and despised. No matter how seemingly, in verse 4, though you ascend as high as the eagle, that's pretty high up there, isn't it? Though you're Nest among the stars. From there I will bring you down. No matter how seemingly untouchable you are in creation, God says, I will bring you down. Are there some lessons that we should learn from this? Yep. Pride is rooted in our head and our heart. It's rooted in our head and our heart. Pride, as it says here, deceives you, verse 3. It causes you to think more of yourself than you really should, than you really are. A big head. That you're really something. The scripture unanimously says that God will humble the proud. Some scripture dealing with pride and the Lord's... uh, Work. Proverbs 16, 18. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Luke 18, 14. Luke 18, 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. One last one. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. The Lord says, Edom, 
I am going to humble your swelling pride. Number two, in verses five to seven, we see here how the Lord will wipe out. The Lord will wipe out Edom's treasures and alliances. Edom will be completely wiped out, verses five and six. If thieves, verse five, had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would those thieves and robbers have not stolen till they had had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. What's the Lord saying through Obadiah here? He's saying he'll be completely wiped out. Edom gained a lot of wealth. How did they get their wealth? Well, they got it by trading. Good position there on the trade routes. They got it by stealing. They got it by iron and copper mining in their hills. The Lord says in verse 5, he says, you know, what do thieves and robbers do? They break into your home. Do they wipe everything out? No, they take select items. They might leave a mess, but they take select items. What about grape gatherers? Do they get everything? No, they take the best and what's needed. They leave what's not ripe enough yet, and they'll get that later. God says in verse 6, that's not what's going to happen. When I send my judgment, I'm going to wipe you out. There'll be search after every hidden thing, completely wiped out. In verse 7, we read how those in alliance with Edom will turn on her. Verse 7, all the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. On the backside of your bulletin, Psalm 83 that we read together. In the passage that I read, the italicized paragraph, uh, the first couple lines there, they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, and so on and so on. The Lord says in verse 7, Edom, you formed a confederacy, a, a military alliance with these other nations, and you believe that because of that, you're impregnable, you're unbeatable, you are safe. Sometime after this prophecy, the Nabataeans, the Nabataeans join the Edomites for a big party, a banquet. The Nabataeans, by the way, are the forerunners to our modern-day Arabs. Once the Nabataeans, so the Nabataeans are coming and they're joining Edom, they're, they're coming for a big party, a big banquet, and once the Nabataeans, remember, it wasn't easy to get in to Edom. Once the Nabataeans came in, they killed the Edomites. They killed their host. And what do we read? That God said would happen in verse 7, the end of verse 7. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Despite Edom's pride, they were completely blinded. 
They didn't see it coming. They weren't aware of it. What are some things we need to take away from this part? Isn't it foolish to depend on money? The Edomites not only depended in their position, their physical location, they depended on money. All it takes is for God to say, Thou fool, today, this night, your soul is required of you, and God will cause you to lose everything just like that. Isn't it foolish to put your confidence in people, alliances that you make? This is not saying it's foolish to be part of a church body. This is looking at unbelievers and what they rely on and their strength and their expectation. The Lord is infinite in power and his presence. Number three, verses eight and nine. The Lord will demolish. The Lord will demolish Edom's wisdom and strength. Verse eight. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau. The Lord would destroy everyone who's wise with understanding. Those who are smart, those who have the ability to use those smarts, they are no match for the Lord, who is infinite in his understanding and infinite in his wisdom the right application, the skillful use of that knowledge. He has perfect knowledge. The Lord will not only make the worldly wise foolish, he will destroy them. But when you get a lot of knowledge and you get a lot of wisdom, what's that do to your head? It swells it up. You think you're unbeatable and nobody can take you on. It'd be like if you gained some experience and knowledge in the game of chess. You not only know the pieces, you gain ability, you study it, and you learn it well. And you get to the point where you can beat everyone in this room here. And some of you might say, well, that might not take too much. I know there's some pretty good chess players in this room. You get such a big head about yourself, you can say, I can beat anyone. And so I call up an individual I know by the name of Magnus Carlsen. And you may have never heard of Magnus Carlsen, but I'll say, you know what? Tell you what, I'll have you play Magnus. And just to help you win a little bit, I won't let him look at the board. I'll have him turn backwards. And just to make sure that you think he's not cheating, we will actually physically blindfold him. And just to make sure that you think that there's no way that he could possibly beat you, we'll have nine other people play Magnus at the same time that you're playing him. And so you start playing and you move your pawn and so the the individual tells Magnus and then he says, I'll move my pawn here or his knight. And the play progresses and oh, by the way, how other many players are there? There's nine other players. You know what's going to happen? You're going to lose. Magnus Carlsen is the top-rated chess player today. And he puts on events like these where 
blindfolded, never seeing not one, but not ten boards, and he beats them all. Talk about knowledge and talk about wisdom. This doesn't hold a candle to the knowledge and wisdom of God. And God said to Edom, you are no match. Verse 9. Then your mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. The Lord will demolish Edom's strength. He will terrify their mightiest, mightiest warriors, the strongest and mightiest in this world. They might be able to beat others, but they are no match. No match for the Lord, who is all-powerful and in every place at the same time. It is another no-contest sort of thing. You're completely out of your league. And so you want an illustration of that one too, don't you? Growing up with my dad and my brother, we had weekly arm wrestling contests. And dad would always beat us because dad was pumping iron at the time. And I think my dad could still beat me in arm wrestling right now. And you all will say, well, of course he could still beat you. Some of you have some pretty good biceps. I know from those handshakes and I know from those hugs that there's some strength in here. Maybe we should have an arm wrestling contest for Oral Bible Church. And maybe at our spring fellowship. That might be fun. And the individual, the man, I shouldn't limit the ladies here, but the man who wins that arm wrestling contest, your head might start to do what? Get kind of big. I still enjoy watching arm wrestling. I've stopped participating in that a long time ago. One of my favorite arm wrestlers is a guy from Minnesota. He's 52 years old. His name is Jeff Dabe. He holds the world record for the man with the largest ring finger. The circumference around his ring finger is four and three quarters of an inch. That is a big hand. He will take a watermelon and just like that, like nothing. You put cans in his hand and you say, where did the can go? He'll just squish it like it's nothing. He'll hold these men's hands and it's like this. Arm wrestling. Let's put the arm wrestling champion of Oral Bible Church against Jeff. And you'll say, I'm not even going to bother. This is just going to be a joke. And when you see Jeff arm wrestle guys, he does this. He just kind of, he has a sheepish smile about him. He just kind of, okay. What time is it? Oh, it's that time. People who have great strength, they can depend on their strength, can't they? And Psalm 2 tells us, he who sits 
in the heavens laughs. Maybe you should write down Jeremiah 9. If you don't know this passage, you should. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Great summary of this idea here. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man in his strength or the rich man in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in these I delight. Verses 10 to 14. The Lord, number four, will humiliate and exterminate. The Lord will humiliate and exterminate Edom because of their violence against Israel. Why will the Lord bring this judgment? He says in verse 10, because or for violence against your brother Jacob, because of violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you'll be cut off forever. Edom will be humiliated. Shame will cover them. Now, if you have something embarrassing, you don't show it to everybody, do you? What's your most embarrassing moment? I'm not going to tell you. That's embarrassing. There will be no hiding Edom's shame. He will exterminate Edom. They will be cut off forever. Wiped out, eliminated, nothing left. You could maybe write in your margin of your Bible here, Genesis 12, 3. He, God promised it, Abraham, he who curses you will be cursed. And that's exactly what would happen to Edom. The Lord would do this to Edom because of what we read about in verse 10, but also in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, we read here how they opposed Jerusalem. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. At this point, it's in the 800s BC. When, one of, uh, when, when, when Judah was being disobedient, God sent nations against them. It wasn't Babylon yet. He sent nations to discipline them. Edom just stood there and watched and actively opposed Jerusalem. Verse 12, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of of distress. Edom is watching this uh, punishment going on and Edom doesn't weep. There's like, yes! Hit that spot over there! This is great! Our enemies, Israel, is getting wiped out. Verse 13. You should not have entered the gate of my people on the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. They not only opposed Jerusalem and rejoiced in their suffering, but because Jerusalem was wide open, Edom went in and they plundered. They stole things. They took advantage. And it gets even worse in verse 14. God says to Edom, you should not have stood at the crossroads 
to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. So Jerusalem is getting pounded by these foreign nations. And escapees or people are trying to get out, trying to escape. And what did Edom do? They cut them off at the pass. They captured them. They killed them. And those that they didn't kill, they'd sell into slavery, into captivity. God is saying here in verses 10 to 14, Edom, you think you're really something. You think you've caused pain. But you are nothing compared to me. I will bring shame on you. I will exterminate you. A couple years ago, this a special type of hornet made its way into the North America area. It's on the west side. Don't worry, it's not over here. But it has a wonderful name, murder hornet. And they're not these little things. They're big. And they can cause death. Aren't you excited? Great reason to live where it's winter. I don't want murder hornets in my home. I don't want them around here. Yes, they would scare me. What would you do if you saw one? I'm going to step on it. I'm going to squish it. How much pressure can you exert? Well, get a scale sometime. Push down on it. The average man can put around 150, 200 pounds just pushing down on that. Standing, you might get a little bit more. You can kind of bounce on it. We'll take care of those murder hornets. What if you got the largest drum roller? Now, you don't know what a drum roller is. I think there's one man in our church who definitely knows what a drum roller is, and he's nodding his head. You know it more by what it's sometimes called a steamroller. They were called steamrollers because they were run by steam, but now they're not run by steam, they're run by diesel. They're those big things that you see roll down the road and flattening pavements. The world's most powerful drum roller can lay down 35,000 pounds of pressure. Let's do a murder hornet against a drum roller. Remember the average man? 150, maybe 200 pounds. That drum roller... 35,000 pounds of pressure. What will that do to that vicious, scary murder hornet? No contest. That's what God says to Edom here. You did all this. You caused this problem. I am going to embarrass you. I am going to exterminate you. The violent always seem to have the upper hand, but there is a day coming. Revelation 5.5 5 says, there is a day coming when the line of Judah who has prevailed, he will open the scroll and loose its seven seals and he will unleash his judgment on this world. That brings us then to the second part of Obadiah's message where he not only he continues, and so what happened, what prophesied in verses 2 to 14, that happened in history. Verses 15 to 21 is in the future. There are still little bits and little 
groups of Edomites still around today. But verses 15 to 21 looks in the future. The Lord's Jesus' destruction of Israel's enemy. And he says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. What's the day of the Lord? So I'll give you a little definition of the day of the Lord here. The day of the Lord is a period in human history, a future period, of the Lord's judgment and blessing. The Lord's judgment and blessing. It is his judgment on unbelieving humanity, and it is also a time when he will usher in Christ's kingdom, a time of tremendous blessing. The Old Testament refers to it in that, in that sense. Two passages maybe to write down of God's judgment during this time. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with a, devoured with a fire of my jealousy. And in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, verse 15 to 21. I'll only read one verse here. Out of the mouth of the Lord, when Jesus returned, comes down from the clouds, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. That is always a picture that has scared the daylights out of me. Jesus, whose birth we're celebrating and remembering, he will tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God when he comes again. That's who we're looking at, the conquering king. Number one, verses 15 to 16, the Lord Jesus will punish. He will punish Edom and Israel's enemies. He will punish Edom and Israel's enemies. Verse 15. The day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. When Jerusalem was largely taken captive, they would come back in future kings after this happened in the 800s, but it wouldn't be long until they were gone. Edom came and they had a big party. They partied in Israel's capital and the holy places. But when Christ returns, when Christ returns, he says in verse 16, you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though they had never been. When Christ returns, he will cause them to drink the cup of his full judgment, his punishment. Two passages along this line. There's dozens. But Jeremiah 25, 15. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand. Cause all the nations to drink it. And then Revelation 14, verses 9 to 10. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 10. If anyone worships the beast, the Antichrist in his image, receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, looking forward to that tribulation time, that person, that person shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength 
into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. It is complete destruction. Verse 16, at the end there, it shall be as though they had never been. Number two, the Lord Jesus will incinerate Edom. Incinerate. I'm not going to check your spelling. You write it so that you know what it means. He will incinerate Edom, verses 17 to 18. Verse 17, on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. That's the southern kingdom. The house of Joseph, the northern kingdom. These are going to be united. There will be a flame. But the house of Israel, or Esau, shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Israelites, verse 17, Israelites who trust in the Lord Jesus, they will be delivered, they'll be saved, they shall be holy, as it says here. That is an essential aspect of Christ's coming kingdom, and only he who is holy can establish that kingdom. The few Edomite descendants who are still alive at this time, verse 17, they're going to join with the other enemies of Israel to fight against them, and they will be incinerated. They'll be like dry stubble. How sure? How sure is it that we know that that's going to happen? What's it say at the end of verse 18? The Lord has spoken. Number three, the Lord Jesus will reign. The Lord Jesus will reign. Verse 19. Well, verses 19 through the beginning of verse 20 tells us about the Lord's, how the Lord's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. Write down Genesis 28, 14. Genesis 28, 14. God said this. Listen, before we read this passage in Obadiah, Genesis 28, 14. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. And that doesn't mean you're going to be ground on to dust. That means you're going to be so many of you, you'll be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the, let's get my directions here, west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and you, your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What do we read here in verse 19? The south, the southern part of Israel shall possess the mountains of Esau. The lowland, the Negev, shall possess Philistia. This is on the west side of Israel, towards the Mediterranean Sea. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. This is the central part of Israel. The south, the west, the central part, and then verse 20. The captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Every place of Israel will be ruled. All that was promised by God to Abraham, they'll dwell there and they'll rule. And then we read this in verse 21. Then saviors... Judges, those under the 
that will be under Christ's rule. And Christ is on the earth. He will have generals, lieutenants, governors, governing in his place. These judges or saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. And then how does this book end? What a statement that ends the book of Obadiah. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Think about all the difficulty that Israel experienced because of Edom. And how does it end? The kingdom shall be the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign. A couple passages. One in particular I want to make sure you get in your Bible, at least, is Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. It has the exact same wording in Hebrew as we read at the end of Obadiah 21. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. And Psalm 22.18 says, The kingdom is the Lord's. He rules over the nations. Another passage you could write down, Luke 1.33. We weren't expecting that one, were you? Luke 1.33. There, I think it was Zacharias in responding, or maybe it was Mary, I can't remember exactly. And thinking about the promised Messiah, it says this, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just like what was promised in Obadiah 21, the kingdom should be the Lord's. Now I want you to turn your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. What will happen when Jesus descends from heaven? When Jesus descends from heaven. Revelation 19, verse 1. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 19, 1, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Drop down to verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes, this is speaking of Christ at his second coming, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His head, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called 
the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by, who, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest, that great horde gathered against Christ, the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. This kingdom that Christ talks about that the Lord promised is not some kind of a wispy dream that people think and imagine in their own minds of the kingdom of God. It will be on earth, ruled by Christ. And this kingdom will not be established by politics. It will not be established by money, political influence. It will not be established by human might or numbers. What will it be? Obadiah 21, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Look at the points of this prophecy that we looked at here on your handout. Just look at the points that we filled in. Humble, wipe out, demolish, humiliate and exterminate. The other side, judgment and blessing, punish, incinerate, and rain. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? Gives us the warm fuzzies. This is what God will do to his enemies. The one who will execute these judgments, he was the one who was born in the manger. He came the first time to seek and to save that which was lost. You must trust in the Savior now. Today is the day of salvation. But if you turn from him and you confirm yourself as his enemy, this is your future. This is what he will do. And it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of loving God. For the believer, a prophecy like Obadiah, it is an encouraging one because it seems like 
we are outnumbered, we are outgunned. It seems like everything is against us. Is there any hope? There's all the hope in the world. No, our hope is in Christ. Christ's kingdom, he will bring it. He will establish it and it will be his. And because of that, Christian, you keep being faithful. He will right all wrongs. Vengeance is not ours to take. What does God say? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is our Savior.